On this special episode of Inside Music Cast, we are proud to welcome Tower of Power. How you feel, y'all? Over 44 years, Tower of Power has been creating and performing music that continues to excite fans all over the world. With a first call, legendary horn section that has graced some of the biggest hits for some of the most well-known artists in the music business, Tower of Power's funky, soulful bumpin' sound has carved a musical niche with a style all their own. Since the band originated on August 13, 1968, Tower of Power has never stopped touring and recording. In fact, they recently released a 40th anniversary CD and DVD that includes several special guests, as well as past members from the band's storied career. Today, Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome three of the band's founding members, Emilio Castillo, Doc Kupka, and David Garibaldi, for this special edition of Inside Music Cast. The Inside Music Cast welcomes Tower Power. Today we've got Doc Kubka. Hello, Doc. Hiya. We've got Emilio Castillo. Hi, everyone. Of course, we've got uh, drummer Dave Garibaldi. Dave, thanks for joining us. Yes, hello. Hey, I also wanted to I also wanted to introduce you guys to Kim Riley. She's our correspondent down in Boca Raton, Florida. Hey, Kim. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right, well, let's dive right in. You know, I was thinking about this. When any band comes together, even some of the greatest bands in the history of popular music, you know, for them to survive even 10 years would be a huge accomplishment. Uh, and, and here you guys are 44 years later and still making incredible music and touring heavily. And Emilio, take us back to 67 and 68 and give me an idea of what your expectations were for this funky new band you were forming. Well, you know, I, I didn't think much into the future at that age. I was only... 17 years old. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, we thought if you made it to Sacramento, you had made it. <laughs> so I was just, I, I just loved having a band. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, working with the band and making music. That was my whole life. But as far as the future, you know, I didn't think about it a whole lot. I knew that that was all I was going to do. You yeah. know, I, I didn't have like, you know, a backup plan or or other plans of being a barber or a DJ or anything, you know. <laughs> right, right. I knew that I was going to play music. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is probably an unfair question, but the band has certainly had, you know, periods of huge success over its 44-year history. But uh, there were also some lean times. And how have you managed to keep this ship on course for so many years? Well, I, first of all, I would have to say that we didn't do it. God did it. Yeah. You know, uh, but I, I know that in retrospect. You know, yeah. <laughs> at the time, yeah. uh, you know, I I was just floundering, and uh, well, you know, we we come from the Bay Area. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, abuse going on back then. You know, physically and mentally, uh, people abusing themselves, and we were we were in there doing our share, and yeah. and so we we had to pay a penalty for that. You know, and it was very difficult, and we had lean times. But what we had, and what we've always had, was a certain kind of music that was exactly what we wanted to play. Yeah. And so, you know, that really is what, you know, has kept us, you know, able to go to work on a daily basis all these years is that we make the music the way we want it to be. Yep. And so every day we go to work, we're doing what we want to do, you know. Yeah. 
How good is that? You know, uh, Doc, you actually, this is Eddie. Um, Doc, you ended up actually auditioning for Emilio at his house, and it was his dad that advised you to sort of sign up. But can you tell us exactly what connected you with Emilio in the first place and uh, to end up at his house for an audition? How did you even get there? Well, um, I started out playing the oboe and doing orchestral kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. uh, high school band stuff and um, you know, I was playing in the orchestra at the University of California, Berkeley, <clears throat> and I heard this Otis Redding record, Otis Blue, Otis Sing Soul, and uh, that along with Sam and Dave, Hold On, I'm Coming, some James Brown stuff, and Bobby Blue Band, uh, Turn On Your Love Light, all I wanted to do from that point on was play soul music. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Not playing over. <laughs> so, I, uh... Um, you know, there's a lot of good uh, tenor players around, and um, so I said, well, I, I should play Barry Sax. And so I, I got got a Barry Sax and uh, learned how to play it, and during that time I was a roadie for a band called The Loading Zone, which was a fairly successful group at yeah. that time in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. a soul band also. Yeah. And uh, so over the Fourth of July weekend... Uh, which actually corresponded to right when I was about ready to, uh, you know, play, perform on Barry. I was good enough to do that at that point, uh, you know, pretty much so anyway. And uh, um, uh, Emilio's band, which was the Motowns, opened for the Loading Zone, uh-huh. and he wanted to use the uh, Hammond organ that uh, uh, the Loading Zone had, and uh, so he came and asked me, and uh, I said yes, and uh, and they were great. You know, choreograph and all the the soul hits of the day, and very well. They had a little three three piece horn section. Yeah. And so afterwards, uh, I went up to Emilio and I said, uh, "Hey, you guys got a pretty good band." And he goes, "Oh yeah, thanks." And I go, "Only one small problem." <laughs> he went, "What's that?" I said, "It's your horn section. There's no bottom on the horn section." Oh, by the way, yeah, <laughs> I play a Selmer with a low A key. And, uh, uh, by the way, I play Yamaha now, and proudly so. I love Yamaha. <laughs> and, uh, uh, plug, plug, plug. Hey, you know, hey, I'll plug my Stroke of the Records, too, before we're done. Oh, we, we'll but get to that. That'll come later. Anyway, um, so he gave me an audition, and, uh, except for a few days off for bad behavior, uh, my first gig was, uh, August 13th, 1968, and I've been with them ever since. Wow, that's incredible. Hey, um, I was I was thinking about the fact, you know, I've always known you guys being from Oakland. I mean, that's that's certainly where your band hailed from, but I found it interesting that the first name of your band, Emilio, was, was the Motowns. And of course, then I, I had to stop and realize that you're actually originally from Detroit, so I'm guessing that had to be part of the influence for that name. But what, what was it that eventually led to uh, the changing of the name of the band to Tower of Power? Well, you know, we were a little soul band in the East Bay, and we played clubs, and we all dressed in suits and had razor cuts, you know. But the times were changing. You know, people were growing their hair out, and the whole psychedelic thing that happened in San Francisco, and the Fillmore Auditorium became the place to play. And we we had gotten busted for being underage, uh, and so all these bars that we were playing in, they were prohibited from hiring us anymore. And, uh, you know, we wanted to get into the Fillmore Auditorium. Yeah. And there was uh, a, what they call Tuesday night auditions. And so we went and we signed up. And, uh, you know, we, we had no work 
for the rest of the year. Our audition wasn't until November. Yeah. This was like January when we signed up. And uh, so all we did was rehearse. And, you know, by that point, we had started writing songs. Doc had, had asked me, you know, uh, to write songs with him. And uh, we started writing. And we knew we were never going to get into the Fillmore Auditorium with a name like the Motowns, dressed, <laughs> you know, in suits and with little razor cuts and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we, we kind of changed our, you know, our, our, our mode of operating, you know. Yep. Grew our hair out long, and we were looking for a new name. And I saw that name Tower of Power on a list of weird band names, you know. <laughs> and uh, I thought it described our sound, so I took it to the guys, and they liked it. And we became Tower of Power, and uh, we just rehearsed for a whole year. And then we we were fortunate enough to get signed when we auditioned on that Tuesday night audition. It, uh, That's right. It moved Bill Graham to sign us. Yeah. So you rehearsed for one whole year before signing. Practically, I guess about seven months. Yeah, you know, and uh, I mean that's all we had to do I mean, because the bars couldn't hire us. If they hired us, they would have lost their liquor license. <laughs> None of the high schools or anything knew us because we had been playing bars for a couple of years, so we had no gigs. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. so by the time we got to the Fillmore, we were starving. I told the guys, yeah. "I'm flying back to Detroit because my my parents had moved back to Detroit." I said, I'm going back there, and if nothing happens with this audition, I'm not coming back, you know. And uh, I remember Doc was devastated, you know. And I flew back, and he called me a few days later, and he said, you got to come back. He dug it. I go, who dug it? He said, Bill Graham. <laughs> I told him, hock the Vox organ and send me a ticket. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> wow. Emilio, tell me about some of your influence acts like the Spiders and Roger Collins, Line of Family Stones, and what was it about them that spoke to you as a musician? Well, you know, um, not only as a musician, but as an entertainer. Uh-huh. People like Sly, Stone, the Spiders, Roger Collins, they they never just came out and just played their music. You know, it was always about entertaining the people and getting the people involved. And uh, my dad, you know, was a, a bartender and a bar manager, and he was in the culinary industry all his life. And he used to work at a lot of these places where they had show bands, you know. And when I got interested in music, he turned me on to a lot of great things. For one, he would take me to where he worked, and I would see these show bands playing songs like Night Train and Gigolo mm-hmm. and stuff like that, Harlem Nocturne. Yeah. And he would take me to different concerts. He took me to see Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles. Wow. And I remember That's one night cool. he came home and he said, you got to go see this guy, Roger Collins, you know. And uh, Roger Collins said, she's looking good out. And it was a huge hit all over the Bay Area. And I went to go see him. And, uh, you know, he was so exciting. That's the thing about him and the Spiders and Sly and the Family Stone, when I saw them, it wasn't just like, oh, they play so good. It was, they're exciting. Their show was exciting. And mm-hmm. I was determined to have that in my band. And um, what about you, David? Who were some musicians or bands that piqued your interest, and what drummers had an impact on your, st- your own style of drumming? You know, I have a, a kind of a lot of influences, actually. My first gigs where I made money, uh, first gig was with the Sid Reese Big Band. We were playing Glenn Miller music here in Livermore, California, where I live. I happened to be taking piano lessons uh, at the Sid Reese Music Store. And they found out that I played drums, and so um, asked me if I wanted to come and play you know, with their band, check it out. It was all these older guys. 
And uh, so they sort of, you know, taught me how to play that music. So I sort of developed a love for that sort of stuff. And then some friends took me to see James Brown in uh, 1965 at the San Jose Civic Auditorium. And it was, uh, you know, probably the greatest, one of the greatest nights of my life. I mean, it was just, I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never seen music like that. I'd never seen any uh, players like that. Um, it was precision. It was excitement. It was all the things that, you know, Tower Power is now that, you know, that's what I saw then. And that's what I decided then that that's what I wanted. So I sort of, you know, was coming up in the jazz tradition. But once I saw that, that sort of changed everything. And so yeah. I sort of followed along that path. but still always loving jazz. I still do. I listen to it every day. Um, so, you know, influences would be Sonny Payne with the Count Basie Orchestra, um, Jake Hanna with Woody Herman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, all that on the jazz side. And right. all the drummers of James Brown. Greg Rico was a big influence. Greg played with Sly and Family Stone. And yeah. we became good friends and, and uh, hung out a lot together. And I, I just learned a lot from him. There were, you know, all of those kind of guys. Zig, uh, Motorist with the meters was a big influence. When I finally got a chance to play with, with Tower sort of was my chance to put all of those things that I wanted to see in the drummer into kind of one. So I approached playing the band like playing in a big band, but playing 16th notes and triplets, playing figures the same way. Yeah. So it kind of went from there, you know, and, and uh, has grown to what it is today. Yeah, exactly. Well, guys, I want to take a break, and I want to listen to uh, a track from your 40th anniversary CD. And this is Soul with a capital S. Sing it, Costa, have it, Funk. 
back in the late 60s and you were talking to us about the Bay Area that everybody was dropping anything that would be droppable you know <laughs> <laughs> you know hey to Ashbury hippies psychedelic stuff you know so that was pretty like San Francisco Bay Area but at that time Oakland had a different thing going on it was a th different thing happening and and Tower was making its way into the scene and so did your Tower Power sound did it did it fit into what was happening it, did it uh, uh, was it a tough sell for the band at first or did you guys uh, have, were, were you guys uh, pretty much a hit from the beginning well by the time we auditioned at the Fillmore that whole psychedelic thing mm -hmm. it kind of run its course okay you know, I mean, all those bands, the Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Grateful Dead, yeah. Big Brother and the Holding Company, they had all been, you know, Jefferson Airplane, they had all been sort of holding court for about four years, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. And But during that time, Bill Graham 
had been tweaking the collective ear of the Bay Area by always putting in these eclectic acts with these psychedelic acts. So you would go to the Fillmore on any given night, and you'd see uh, Charles Lloyd and Albert King and Quicksilver. You know, and the next night you yeah. might see Miles Davis and Sam and Dave and Big Brother and the Holding Company. You know, there was a, a great mixture of sounds. You brought in salsa and soul and blues and, you know, big band jazz. And so the collective ear of the Bay Area was being tweaked, you know, and so they were ready for something different. And, you know, Sly had happened and Santana had happened. And Mm -hmm. right about then, we auditioned, you know, and it was the perfect time for us. So, you know, at that point, we weren't struggling, but we struggled before that. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, the the four years before that, we were, you know, we were definitely not the popular band in the Bay Area. You know, nobody knew us. We were just a working class band, you know. Mm -hmm. But right around the time that we got that audition, you know, that was the perfect timing for us. Yeah, and you, you mentioned Bill Graham, and we were talking. You know, you were talking about you know uh, how he signed you guys to your first record contract. But you know, he really was a visionary, and he was responsible for creating you know a new energy in live music. Like you said, it it is Fillmore Theater, and in doing so, you know, of course, he opened up doors from a cultural perspective and provided you know a theater where anyone was uh, you know performing. I mean, all kind like you said, a, such a, a a variety of acts. And it, I guess, at that time, you know, a lot of jazz clubs in the San Francisco area. We're kind of discriminating against, you know, African American patrons. So this was opening the door not just to bands, but also to patrons who wanted to come in and hear the music. Yeah, I mean, Bill Graham, you know, he doesn't really get the credit anymore uh, that he deserves. But I mean, anybody who's been in this industry for you know a few decades knows that we have this industry because of him. That's not to say that there were not famous rock and roll acts and you know a concert. Uh, a career for for different acts, but he took it to a whole other level, you know. And the the way rock concerts are today, it exists because of Bill Graham. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, and because of that, uh, you know, your first album, which was called uh, East Bay Grease, you know, it it uh, it sort of fell flat, right? I mean, sales were pretty low, and this caused some problems with the band and and uh, Bill Graham. You, uh, it wasn't too far after this that you guys sort of went separate ways, right? Yeah, you know, like a lot of, you know, uh, new acts that come out. We were mm-hmm. we were big in the Bay Area. The the record was a hit in the Bay Area. Yeah. But we were completely unknown in the world, right, <laughs> you know. Exactly, yeah. So they sent us on our first national tour, and it's the same yeah. story with every act yeah. on their first time out. You know, you go to the town, nobody knows who you are, your records aren't in the stores, uh, you know, and you feel like, you know, you're getting raked over the coals by your manager. Yeah, right. And uh, so we were young and impressionable, and we came back, and we made the horrible mistake of, uh, you know, just really insulting him. Uh, we took some bad advice from some people who were purveyors of bad advice, and uh, <laughs> you know, we, we made a huge mistake. And yeah. We got into this big quarrel with him. Uh, it literally almost came to a fist fight on the first day. Wow, wow. And, uh, but, you know, he always loved us. Yeah. I mean, he loved the band, and he particularly loved me and Doc. Yeah. And so Doc and I would go in to visit him uh, pretty much every Monday that we were home, and we would just try to apologize. And he, he basically would sit there and listen, and then he would uh, 
say, well, you know, boys, and then his voice would start getting louder, and pretty soon he'd be standing over the desk with his fist in the air, and he'd be screaming at us that <laughs> we're not going to screw him like Santana did, and, you know, all the people uh, out of the office, he had glass windows on his office, all the people would be looking in, and oh we kind of listen to him and go, okay, Bill, we'll, we'll come back and talk about it some more next week, and we did that for <laughs> many months, and then finally, you know, we, we left this... Uh, cocaine dealer manager that we had gotten and uh we came to our senses we went back to our original manager who first got assigned with bill and got you know looked at our contract his name was ron barnett and uh uh-huh. ron basically went in and said you know what do you want and bill screamed for about three minutes and, and then he said I, I want x amount of thousands and x amount of points on their warner brothers contract because we already had a contract waiting for us at warner's because by that point we were super hot, and people wanted another record. Yeah, know? exactly. So uh, even though we fought for nearly a year, uh, we really were, were building our relationship because me and Doc were basically, basically trying to apologize through that whole year, and, and he was always very gracious. I mean, he wound up screaming, but you know he loved us, and that was always clear. And then after that, we were the best of friends. And, uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times he... He helped us in different ways. Like, for instance, even when we were fighting, he had us open for Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore West. (laughs) Even though, I mean, we were in a bitter battle, he knew that we were the best band for that weekend. He put us on, you know. And we we were very friendly for the whole time. I mean, he loved what we did there, you know. So, I mean, he was just a a really soulful guy. Yeah. You know, uh, we got through it. Yeah. So, Doc, you you know, you were, you know, as uh, as Emilio is talking, you're probably relating to everything. So you guys managed to make an impact. And but I'm curious, how did you guys end up on the tours with uh, Santana and CCR from uh, what well, we understand? You know, I mean, this this pushed your stock as a band way, you know, w- very high. And, you know, fans, like you said, were really digging what you guys are doing. Doc. Well, um, Santana knew about us from the neighborhood and. uh and we played on one of his records. Yeah, uh, everything is everything, or whatever that song is. And uh, it was uh, the horns. Greg, Greg Adams did a fabulous job on uh, arranging that, and we sound real good. So he had us play some some gigs with him, and it was really cool. As for CCR, Dave should uh, tell that story because he got it happening for us through uh, his relationship. Well, actually, you know, actually, those uh, those two gigs came about because. I was friends with the drummers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Doug Clifford, who was the, you know, Cosmo, the drummer with Creedence Clearwater, I was giving him drum lessons at his house. We lived up in Kensington, had this beautiful home, and he asked me to give him drum lessons, but I couldn't tell anybody. <laughs> so I'd go up there and we'd hang out and I'd give him drum lessons and we would play and we got to be very good friends. He's just a great guy. Uh-huh. And one day he says to me, how would you guys like to go on tour with us? Boing. <laughs> so, you know, immediately, of course, you know, I told all the guys, and, you know, we we got that happening right away. And, then, you know, they were really the first band to take us around. Then uh, I, I was living with Michael Shreve at his house over in Mill Valley. And we were very, very good friends. And one day, you know, he says to me, how would you guys like to go on tour with us. Boing. So, <laughs> it's a pattern you know, here. The, yeah, it's a pattern, right. <laughs> and so I think within the first 
year after East Bay Green, I think 71, we toured with both of those bands. And um, it really did an incredible amount of things for us. I mean, we were at the Fillmore East. We did a really nice tour with Santana all over the place. We did really nice arenas. Credence took us all over the place. Even when we, that was when we first sort of were introduced to the larger public. It would be similar to us today when we did these Dave Matthews shows. At that time, you know, nobody knew who we were, blah, blah, blah. And I remember we played the Shreveport Coliseum with the lights on and uh, people filing in and people started throwing stuff up to the stage. Somebody threw like a full Coke can or some crazy thing and Doug Kim Son, our wonderful tour manager for years and years, was standing on the front of the stage calling guys out who were throwing stuff as we were playing. <laughs> it was pretty deep. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, so those, that's how, you know, kind of how those two things um, developed. And then, of course, with Santana, you know, our relationship with them has continued, you know, to this day. You know, we're still friendly with them, and we did the Montreux Jazz Festival with them two years ago here. And yeah. Very cool. It was on that tour with CCR that uh, inspired the song Soul Vaccination. We were playing in Texas, I think. It was either Houston or Dallas. And uh, and all these white fans are out there. We were playing the you know, syncopated snap funk soul music. And, and they were open-mouthed, not getting it <laughs> whatsoever. And uh, that's where I thought of the... Disease honky pox, which led to soul vaccination and th- that song. So I'm grateful for unfunky white fans in Texas circa 1970-71 for uh, inspiring soul vaccination. Okay. So all of our listeners in Texas, if you fall into that category, we say thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, you yeah, know, I, I often uh, hear from fans, you know, I saw you guys open for Creedence Clearwater, and you were so great, and I tell them, you liar. (laughs) You know, because the truth is, we didn't really get over that well on those gigs. Uh, I remember we did 32 dates, Uh and the last date was Oakland. And by the time we got to Oakland, we were like, boy, we're going to kick CCR's butt at Oakland Coliseum, because we got ours kicked 31 times in a row. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's great. And also on that tour, uh, the the middle act was Bo Diddley. Really? And every That's right. gig that he did, he would go, um, I got, this is Bo Diddley, and I got my start 18 years ago today in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or 18 years ago today in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wherever he was. He did yeah. it every night. He got a big kick out of that. That's funny. That's great. Hey, you uh, know, also, uh, also there was a gig that we did at the Forum with uh, Santana and Jose Feliciano. It was two nights, I think. It was it was in March. I got the poster here on my wall. That's how I can tell you the date. It was March twenty third. I think it was nineteen seventy one. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And was at the Forum in L A. We played there for two nights. And on the first night, Buddy Miles Express was there, and Buddy completely took us to school. Um, it was the first time I'd ever seen an audience give a standing ovation and then hold up their cigarette lighters and all that stuff. We're in the forum in L.A. Uh-huh. And uh, it, was an, it, it was a pretty awesome experience, but at the same time, it was, it was quite a lesson as well because Buddy 
band. They were bringing it as hard as they could bring it. It, it was it was pretty amazing. Wow, that's cool. Hey, you know, Lenny Williams uh, replaced Rick Stevens, of course, as lead vocalist back in '73, and. You know, he, he sang on some of the band's biggest hits, uh, such as So Very Hard to Go and What is Hip. But when I think about that, when I look back at that history, I was always surprised that he decided to part ways with you guys to pursue a solo career. And I don't know much about the reasoning, but I was thinking, you know, it had to be a peculiar situation for the band as you guys were coming off a really successful period. And now you're having to find a new lead singer. And, you know, you obviously pushed forward and found, you know, uh, Hubert Tubbs, but but was Lenny's departure sort of a – was it a, a setback in any way for you guys during that time, or, or did you guys just forge ahead and, and everything was okay after that? Well, you got to understand, we had already been through two singers. Right, right. So yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't new territory, particularly for us, you know. And, and, <laughs> and even forging ahead. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, even for that matter, I was the singer first, and then it was Rufus, and then it was Rick. Right. And uh, I remember when uh, when Rick Stevens came in, you know, people screaming, where's Rufus? You know, we want Rufus! You okay, know? okay. And uh, same thing when Lenny came in, you know, we want Rick, where's Rick? Who's this guy? You know, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we were we were pretty much, you know, used to the fact that, you know, we are going to get through it, you know. But, of course, over the years, having had so many different members, it gets easier, you know, the more you do it. And uh, right, right. pretty soon, it became the kind of thing where, you know, People were excited when we made a band member change. They wanted to see who they got now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, what yeah. did they pull out of bag this time? You know? yeah. There's a story about Towers experiencing opening for Jimi Hendrix at the Berkeley Community Theater. And can you tell us a little bit more about this experience? Well, that was our very first rock concert that we ever played. We had just got signed to Bill Graham. My brother was still the drummer before Dave came in. And... Um, Jimi Hendrix made us play in front of the curtain with the lights on before the people even came in. So people were walking in, and we were we were playing songs like uh, Sparkling in the Sand and Knock Yourself Out and Social Lubrication. We played about 20 minutes, I think. And, uh, you know, I remember that, you know, my manager at the time, Ron Barnett, he took Bill Graham to task over that because he said, he said you know, I know they're nobody. And I know, you know, that nobody knows them, but that was totally disrespectful. And and Bill Graham apologized up and down. He said it was, it was Jimmy. You know, Jimmy said that you guys had to do that. I will make it up to you. And uh, he was a man of his word. He made it up to us soon, gave us another big concert. But, you know, it was during the period when it was just before Jimmy died. And uh, he was doing the, the Star Spangled Banner. You know, that was his big thing at the time. And, um you know, for us, it was just like new ground. I mean, we had never played a rock concert. Sure. Here we are at Berkeley Community Theater yeah. opening for Jimi Hendrix. So <laughs> it was exciting for us. Oh, absolutely. A little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, here's, here's a question, guys. Um, this is from Brian Pearson. He's our Chicago correspondent, and uh, he has an interesting question. He's curious about uh, the first time that you encountered uh, working with uh, Jim Morrison. How can you tell us about this experience and why you were traveling with him in Mexico? Well, the very first tour that we ever did, uh-huh. ever, with the band. You know, remember I told you, we, we couldn't get any gigs because we had been busted by the alcoholic beverage control for being <laughs> underage. So okay. we conveniently didn't tell that to Bill Graham when he signed us. And so, you know, one of the, one of the many contracts that we signed with Bill was 
a booking contract, uh, you know, so that his booking agency had to book us. Yeah. And the first thing they found out was they couldn't book us nowhere. You know, none of the high schools wanted us because they didn't know who we were. None of the bars could hire us because we were underage. So they couldn't get us any gigs. So the first thing they did, they called up and uh, they said, what do you think about going to Mexico City for 14 days? You'll play for 10 days and you'll be off for four. Well, we were stunned. I mean, you know, this was still back when my brother was the drummer, and we were just, I mean, we were raw, you know. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, they they were testing the ground because there had been a big rock concert with the Grateful Dead in Mexico City where there was a, a riot. And they had banned all rock concerts for about, I don't know, two years or so. And so they were testing the waters because they wanted to bring in Santana or some big you know, big rock act from Bill Graham. But right. before they did it, they wanted to bring in a, a relatively unknown band to see how it went. So, you know, we said, yeah, you know, we'll call, you know. So they fly us down there, they put us in a really nice hotel, and um, every night, the federalities, you know, and I'm talking federalities, man, with, you know, bullets crisscrossed in front of their chests, you know, uh, with a big X of bullets, and, and, you know, surrounded the whole venue, and nobody came. And so we played four nights, and they, they basically went belly up. But there was this promoter uh, who really lost a lot of money on the deal, and he was very gracious, you know, and he had press parties for us and a lot of stuff, and his name uh, was Mario something. I can't remember his last name. Okay. And he was friends with uh, Jim Morrison. And so Jim Morrison was hanging out the whole time, and we were off. You know, all we did was go to these parties that the promoter, you know, arranged for us. And uh, Jim Morrison was there, and at that time, it was right before he died as well, and uh, his alcoholism was pretty advanced, you know. So if you saw him in the morning at breakfast, really nice guy, you know. But by noon, I remember being out in front of the Hotel Suites in Parador, mm-hmm and walking out the front and looking up, hearing this blithering and seeing Jim Morrison hanging over the balcony throwing up already at noon. (laughs) And I remember going to a a press party, and uh, they had a really cool band called the Love Army, and they were playing on all these, uh, there was like four cylinders of various sizes. So one had a microphone for the singer, one had an amplifier, and the guitar player was up there. One was the bass player, and then a bigger one for the drum set. And I remember Jim Morrison got up there, because we had all sat in, and, and he got up there, and he, he grabbed the mic, and he said, let's play some good old-fashioned American rock and roll. <laughs> and he took the microphone, and he spun the cord around, and it it lashed around the um, the cymbal stand, and the hi-hat, and you know, that was, this was back in the day, this was before they had really good drum hardware that held your <laughs> drums in place, you know. So you usually just put your, your drums on a, on a carpet or something, you know. Yeah. Well, he did that, and he yanked on the mic, and the drums fell off the pedestal. <laughs> I mean, it was a mess, you know. So that was our time uh, up there with, uh, you know, Jim Morrison. It was uh, very memorable, really clear in my memory, and... Uh, Kind of sad, you know. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Hey, guys, let's take another break, and I want to get a little funky here. From Tower of Power's 40th anniversary CD, this is You've Got to Funkifies. You've got to funkify. 
You know, Doc, I've got a question for you, and and it's sort of like, uh, in a way, it's sort of backing away and seeing the the band as a, uh, a, in the wide picture. But it has to do with you know your benchmark of you know the other horns that uh, in, in the section, and how can you explain, Doc, uh, j- just you know the magic that happens within the horn section? I mean, there is such complexity, and you guys must know each other so much, and and from playing all these years, and the, how you arrange music, where, where does that the magic come from? I mean, it, it's it's really neat. Um, well, we play clipped. We snap off our uh, our notes. Yep. And um, just uh, we were lucky to have a real good arranger, Greg Adams, for for years and years. Yeah. And uh, he knew how to you know less is more concept, and uh, and <clears throat> also the independent Barry, where I play little pops and scoops against uh, lines. That the other four guys, or three of them, if Emilio is singing, yeah, uh, background and um, just yeah, it makes her um, not just magical, but it sounds bigger than than it is. Yeah. just behind the, the voicing, and we're lucky now. We have a ranger, Dave Eskridge, who uh, when Greg left, uh, um, took over for him in a few years after Greg left. So we're all set. Um, actually, this next question is from uh, Max Zape, who is another correspondent for Inside Music Cast, and he is from Southern California. And this is for uh, you, Emilio. He said, and actually, Doc, too, he goes, you two have written so much of the uh, Tower of Power canon, and, and your music is, 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 is as topical today as it was years ago. And he said, you guys still feel the same creative energy when writing together now, uh, you know, as opposed to when you did back in the day. And, and if, if there's anything different, let us, you know, what would that be? Well, you know, back in the day, uh, we weren't married, we didn't have kids, we didn't own homes, <laughs> yeah. we lived together in a house, we were obviously partying a lot, you know, and uh, so, you know, the we'd get to a certain degree of being high or whatever and, you know, start writing a song, and sometimes that would go late into the night or, yeah. or even further, you know. Yep. Uh, these days, it's different, you know, we live in separate towns, uh, we have to make appointments, um, but generally, when we're going to write together, you know, we say, uh, you know, let's get together at 11 o'clock. Doc comes over. The first thing we do is we pray, and then we talk. And we just talk about anything, you know, or whatever comes up. Yep. And uh, generally, out of that conversation comes some sort of a germ or an idea that we can latch on to. Or we may have, you know, some preconceived uh, ideas about a rhythm, a chord progression, a hook, a lyric, a storyline. And uh, and then after that, it's like fishing, you know. Yeah. You just you cast in, and then you just keep reeling it in until you're done. And generally, by around three, four, five o'clock, we finish the song. Wow, very cool. That's that's it's cool to hear that process, you know, from you guys. A lot of times we go into uh, with having a preconceived idea of a, a song to write. That, yeah. Uh, if there, there's something I know I want to write, uh, we can work on it. But we always start with a prayer and. Uh, and, and talking. That's excellent. Very cool. Okay. You know, it's been way too long, but uh, <clears throat> Eddie and I last caught the Tower of Power at the Embassy Theater in Fort Wayne, Indiana, back in 2004. And that was for uh, this company called Sweetwater, which you guys are probably familiar with. Uh, they had their, oh, yeah. they were having their 25th anniversary. And, and, you know, I was just thinking, you know, what I love about this band are the arrangements of the songs that you guys perform live. And, and to me, you really seem to stick to the heart of the arrangements of the original recordings when you're doing them live. And, and too many times, you know, like when I see other bands, 
that have been around for a long time, they've, they've modified their arrangements and sometimes they're too drastic and it's, the song becomes sort of unfamiliar. But it's just, you know, it, to me, when I hear you guys play live, it's like stepping back into the record, you know, and it just feels really good. And I, I, I mean, do you guys vary your arrangements all that much? I've not been able to detect it very much. Actually, we do. Um, <laughs> and we're, we're sort of constantly updating. Yeah. But, um, I think the essence of the pre-recorded song is always there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we, you know, we, we don't do, like, you know, I don't know if you remember James Brown. Like, he would do Out of Sight, you know. Yep. He mm-hmm. would do it as a shuffle. He would do it. You know, he had all different kind of versions. Great. The super fast one, the super slow one. You know, um, we haven't done that too much, but we are always updating our arrangements. And sometimes... We'll add little sections in the ride out, or we'll just tighten up a sequence going into the bridge the way the accent is, or we might, you know, somebody will have an idea say, hey, you know, like, like I remember, you know, we did soul vaccination for years, and we came out of the horn soli, and we just went, better that, soul vaccination. And it always seemed like we had done this big thing, and then all of a sudden we were back in the verse. And the crowd was like, oh, okay. So I never really got the applause factor or the, uh-huh. the wow factor from the soli. And so one day I said, uh, why don't we just hold that chord longer? Yeah. So, so that when yep. we come back, it's yep. like, okay, we have ended this section and now we are back. And, you know, immediately we got a crowd response. So we'll do little things like that in our arrangement just to sort of tweak the response that we get from a crowd or, mm-hmm. or it might be just uh, an idea rhythmically that, you know, Dave, Dave does this a lot, certain horn players, you know, just like, you know, let, let's, let's do this right here, man. Let's add this thing here, you know, uh, uh, a little, you know, um, bridge to make it go into this next section or whatever. Yeah. A lot of times on the ride outs, we'll do ride outs a certain way. We've done different things in the ride out to what is hip. For years, you know, that just we'll be doing it for two or three years, and then all of a sudden, something else will morph, and we'll be doing that for the next two or three years. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple questions, and sort of follow up on what you're saying there. I, um, we're getting the a, a very interesting vibe that you know you guys had do something else that uh, a lot of bands probably don't do when you get together or before uh, even writing or whatever. You guys say a prayer. I mean, what? Uh, tell us about the spiritual value of of what you guys do because apparently you carry it everywhere, even on the tour bus. So, Emilio, give us a little snapshot there. Well. You know, we lived our lives by self-will for a lot of years and nearly lost our career and our lives over it, mm-hmm. you know. And in the late 80s, uh, I sobered up, and uh, within a year, Doc was sober. And uh, it was at that time that, you know, I, I just made a conscious decision that I was going to make sure to hire sane people, mm-hmm. people with moral principles and people that I could spend, you know, 20 hours with, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, well, what, I don't know what you know about, you know, these uh, 12-step programs, but they're spiritual programs, and so very early on, you're encouraged to pray and to get a relationship with uh, a power greater than yourself, and, you know, I was one of these guys, you know, I believed in God. I, I wasn't going to be one of these guys that prayed to the cosmos or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some new age guy that believe that, oh, all the planets are God. You know, I believe that there was a God, and, and I, the people that had the kind of sobriety I wanted, they were praying to God. Mm-hmm. And so I just started doing that, and uh, Doc started doing it when he got clean. And, you know, one day we were on the gig, and it was when Brent Carter was the singer, 
and Barry Danelian, who was a Muslim, uh, was in the band, and uh, and I saw them praying over in the corner, and I had already been praying for quite a while, mm-hmm. but they were praying together before the gig, and they called me over, you know, you want to pray? Go, yeah, you know, so we prayed, and you know, pretty soon, you know, somebody else was walking by the next night, we called them in, and then before we knew it, just the whole band was praying, you know, and, and then it became just a routine, you know, that we do. I'll never forget, you know, when Dave, Dave's been in and out of the band a few times. Yeah. And it was always difficult for him when we were out of our minds, you know, because he was a pretty straight shooter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a period in his life where he was very much into God and prayer, and we were the furthest thing from that. But when he came back in 1998, I'll never forget, I think it was the very first gig that we did, you know, I got everybody to do the prayer because that's what we did, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I looked at him, you know. And we were we finished the prayer, and his eyes were kind of watering. And he looked at me and said, "I always believed it could be like this." You wow! Know? That's... And we've been praying every day ever since. And what we notice is that it works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, <laughs> we're still junkies, basically. You know, <laughs> yeah. when we do something that we like and it works, yeah. we keep doing it. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. You can definitely feel the love on the whole thing. Hey, Doc, I want to ask you a question here. When you guys go on the road, like to pr- promote a new project, is there something more to the music, uh, more than the music that you guys uh, that goes into designing a show for on the road? I mean, you guys are so entertaining when you guys play, and uh, so so what goes into it more than the music well when there's a uh, new um like cd yeah you get a few songs from it and i wouldn't say that there's more that goes into it than uh just you know playing well okay. I mean, we put a new show together incorporating the new tunes and uh and and we got to the hard thing for us is what tunes not to do yeah exactly there's, right there, there's uh um personal favorites that have to go when new songs come in and there's certain perennials that you just have to do there's no way we can not do what is hip or you know still a young man yeah um and these days me and mrs jones from uh a great american soul book album is right. uh, uh, pretty much a tower classic now yeah. instant classic and uh so we just uh when, like when we have our new album come out or new i guess you would say cd Album does that? Uh, I still say album. Me a little bit. <laughs> no, I still <laughs> anyway, say album too. <laughs> when the new CD comes out, right. uh, you know we'll uh, get pick out some songs from there and uh, and and just move ahead on. Hey, you know, Doc, the horn section has been involved in so many studio sessions over the years for some of the biggest names in the music industry. And, and uh, I realize this question might be a little vague, and Emilio, feel free to chime in this as well, but when, uh, when you enter the studio and get involved in a session for someone else, how involved you know, are you or can you be from a creative perspective? And I know that varies per, you know, depending on who you're playing with, but are you generally, generally there to play off of the charts? Are you often asked you know, for your creative input? Well, um, we try to encourage whoever it is to have a, a, arrangements ahead of time. Yeah. So then that makes it uh, easier for us. And um, in my case, on baritone, I, I often have to lower things an octave. Yeah. They they tend, uh, if they don't know better, to write too, an octave too high. And I just kind of do that. I've been doing it so long that I just do it automatically, you yeah. know. And uh, occasionally we'll switch voicings and stuff and make it fatter. But uh, yeah. if it's our arranger who does it, um, 
and we basically he knows how to write for us now. Yeah, mm-hmm. we we know what we're doing in the studio in terms of adding our horn section to let's say a rock and roll record or right. a gospel record, even a country record, whatever it may be. Yep. You know, we've done it a lot of times, and these people that hire us, they know that we've done that. So if I hear something, I feel pretty comfortable in saying, you know, I don't think this is working here. Yeah, you know, right. What if we moved it out of the way of that vocal there? Or yeah. what, what if we put something here where you have this blank spot to, to make it a little more exciting? Or, you know, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable talking to people. And, and, of course, you know, it's their record, so if they don't like it, they can let me know, no, that's not really what I'm looking for, and I'm, I'm not going to push the issue, you know. Yeah. I do try to always tell people now, if you're hiring Tower Power Horns, please use our arranger, yeah. because he knows how to arrange for our horn section. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to spend all these thousands of dollars to get this famous horn section in there mm-hmm. and then have an arranger that doesn't know how to arrange for them <laughs> yeah, exactly. and waste your money you know, and waste a lot of time in the studio. Yeah. And we've had that happen a few times. So now <laughs> I pretty much always insist that they use Dave Eskridge or else if, if they have an arranger and they're going to you know, insist that they use them, I say, well, let me at least see the arrangement ahead of time to make sure it's okay. You know, Doc, you said a second ago when you walk into the studio, you said it's off, you know often nice to have the arrangements uh, ready to go and the charts ready, but have has there been times when you guys have walked into the studio and, and uh, there's been nothing? They just expect you to, to do it on the fly? I mean, has that ever happened? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, head charts is uh, a lot of the sessions uh, that I'm involved in uh, without Tower Power, it's that way because it yeah. saves the people money on... on uh, you know, not having to pay for a chart. Yeah. And if it's good musicians, uh, you can, you know, you know how to do that. Yeah. But as for Tower Power, it just works out far better when it's uh, um, charted out. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, obviously, Doc, you know, the the horns are obviously an, an acoustic instrument, but without question, a great horn section adds a lot of electricity. So when you step back and take a look at the music scene over the 40 years and and you see what's changed, I mean, uh, you guys endured, um, horn sections endured a lot of change in the mid-80s with everything going gu- guitar synth and, and MIDI horns and that kind of stuff, and, and all that went away. Um, but we're back to the to the horn sound again. You know, it's... Uh, uh, it's still classic. Uh, give us a give give us a thought there because we remember back then when when David Foster began producing Chicago in the early '80s, his initial idea was to axe the horn section, and it didn't seem right. You know, well, it was, they had some number one records, so that was right. But uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you, you know, I mean, horn wise, Chicago, um, you know, they were one of the first just really good horn sections. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, you know it's, it seems a shame to uh to do that although it was successful so i can't knock that hey dave let's talk drums a little bit you know um sure. with, with so much syncopation going on with the horns and and i mean that with a capitalized syncopation um you know how how does it change how you as a drummer approaches rhythm as opposed to playing um you know drummers that are playing with non-horn bands tell us a little bit about the complexity and in, in what you have to deal with rhythmically well you know, as far as that goes, you know, we kind of invented a way for ourselves to play. I mean, when I came on the band, I, I really sort of interpreted the music in the way that I felt it. And I was kind of like this, um, you know, I felt like I was sort of like completely free when I joined the band. I had a way that I was starting to play and, uh, you know, 
made me really like drums. So he sort of gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do. And any time anybody objected, he kind of was my advocate, and he would kind of like stand in the way of it and just let me let me go. So a lot of rhythmically what we developed came about from my growth and, you know, kind of like incorporating all of that into kind of our rhythmic base. And so, you know, there wasn't really any other bands doing it the way we were doing it. They were sort of like that, but not kind of in the way that we sort of developed things. Mm -hmm. And so my concept was, at least in East Bay, Greece, I sort of like played everything I could. I, that was me in the kitchen sink. Everything that I could think of, I played. And so when we started to do more recordings, I realized that I had kind of a limited vocabulary and that I didn't want to sound the same, you know, on this recording as I did on the previous one. So I started developing this way to approach each song where each song and each section of the song had its kind of individual kind of signature sort of drum groove. And that sort of evolved to you know, soul vaccination, which was really the first thing that we did where there was no basic two and four. It was totally unconventional. I had been listening to Latin music, and I realized that there was all this killer groove going on, but there was no drummer pounding out two and four. So I started kind of making up beats that were just rhythms. They weren't anything traditional from a drum standpoint. And we started building music around it. I remember when Soul Vaccination, when we first started putting it together and we were realizing how cool it sounded and how unique it was. And that sort of just, you know, was like putting gas on a fire. We just kind of started then um, developing even further this whole rhythmic concept. And so horns and everything was all kind of integrated. We sort of like would build things around these grooves that, we would construct, and so that's kind of like how things developed rhythmically, and it sort of continues to that day. And now, yeah. stylistically, um, we kind of have our own thing. Like Count Basie had a style of music. James Brown had a style, a rhythmic style. Woody Herman had a rhythmic style. We sort of are in, I think, that category now. We sort of develop the way that we do things. Even when new people come in the band, Everybody says, oh, I love Tower of Power. I listen to your music. I've played a lot of it. Well, mm -hmm. it's different being outside of it than being inside of it. Yeah. You have to kind yeah. of give people Tower 101 as soon as they step into the band so that they <laughs> understand kind of how we like to do things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, rhythmically, that's how kind of it all evolved. Yeah, very cool. You know, Dave, uh, we really want to take a little bit of time and, and congratulate you. We want to congratulate you in advance because you're about ready to be inducted into the Percussive Arts Society Hall of Fame in November. So and uh, yeah. so, congratulations. We think this uh, the expo is in, in Austin, Texas, uh, but, you know, the, the society is based here in Indianapolis. So we congratulate right. you. That's a, a huge honor it must be. It's kind of like um, a baseball player being in the Hall of Fame, although the difference is that I'm still active. It's kind of cool. You know, there's there's only really just a, a handful of people that have been inducted into it. 
Yeah. Uh, the Percussive Arts Society has been around, I guess, what, since 1972, early 70s, something like that. Yeah. So a couple of people who were really important to me musically, um, Sandy Feldstein, who gave me my first book um, deal, uh, you know, writing an instructional book and mentored me through all of that. Uh, he's in there. He's, he's now passed away, but I still think of him just a wonderful person, and one of my favorite teachers also passed away, Mr. Murray Spivak, who I studied with, who really helped me a lot. So they're both in there, and I get to be in there with with those guys. It just kind of blows my mind that it's happening. Yeah. Hey, Doc, let's talk about Strokeland Records. We, uh, I know we you were going to touch on that earlier, but uh, you started Strokeland back in 98, and it, I guess you, you started it as a means of developing your own music as well as you know, providing a home for other jazz and funk artists. And, you know, one of those bands on your label is uh, is near and dear to Inside Music Cast, and that's Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. And I got to say, you know, outside of the Tower Horns, one of the best horn sections, you know, out there that's a close runner-up is Santa Fe's. They're phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to a couple of their shows out in Vegas at the Palms and and just really enjoyed it. And Jerry Lopez is a good friend of the show, too. So tell us about Strokeland and, and uh, what's happening with that right now. Well, Strokeland is a way for uh, for me to get songs out there that uh, wouldn't get out other otherwise. That's its main intent. So <clears throat> I do a lot of songwriting and, and many songs that I consider great yeah. uh, songs of mine do not make Tower Power Records. So, so Strokeland's for that, and then it's kind of um, kick it up a step. The first one, it took up three years to get it made, but the, the thing I'm proudest of... Uh, uh, about that CD is that it got Dave and Rocco playing together again and it was instrumental in getting Dave back in the band and we were able to turn the corner with him back in the band and so that was a, a great uh, great thing about that yeah. and then subsequently you know artists who uh, are kind of similar who want to put their, their CDs out um, you know we sell them off our site and uh, I have a brand new, new song uh, I mean CD called The Life and Times of Frank Biner, which was actually recorded in 1982. But okay. uh, through uh, this, that, and the other thing, uh, it never came out. So uh, a while back, I got it uh, digitally remixed and finally got it out. So I'm really proud of that. Very cool. It's a, it's a great sound of CD. Frank, unfortunately, passed away in 2001. He had a, a congenital heart thing that ran in the family that uh, we didn't know about and... Uh, so, anyway, he's no longer with us, but he was a great songwriting and singing talent. So yeah. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have that out. And and uh, my next one will be Doc Goes Vegas. We'll oh, be cool. coming out at the end of November. Very cool. Awesome. Um, Emilio and Doc, uh, tell me about your connection to George Martin and your work on the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album that was produced in 78. I'd love to know more about that experience you had with George. We've had a couple of experiences with George over the years. We did that. That's three days of recording on Sgt. Pepper movie. And we also did uh, the band America when he produced them. And nice. each time it was a thrill and a pleasure. He's a consummate pro. He's super musical. He's uh, very easy to get along with. And uh, it was just thrilling to do that. And, uh, you know, when we did the Sgt. Pepper, actually both both of those recordings, uh, Greg Adams was uh, writing the charts for us. And uh, particularly on the Sgt. Pepper writing, uh, I just thought he, he took those recordings, because they were all new versions of previous Beatle hits that were in the movie, you know. 
and it was done by all these really great musicians. I remember the bass player uh, sounded a lot like Rocco. His name was Wilbur Bascom, and I was amazed by him. And uh, But I thought that Greg Adams, his horn arrangements just took all those recordings to another level, and uh, you could tell that George really uh, you know, appreciated it. It was just thrilling. Very cool. Yeah. And George got his start on oboe, same as me. I was very proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, is that the truth or not? That is the truth. Yeah. It wow. is the truth. Wow. <laughs> I would have never guessed that. Hey, this is the question for all three of you. And, uh, and you know, you guys are together an awful lot. You're on the bus a lot touring. But in your own time, what what are you guys listening to? Any particular artist, new, classic? I mean, I know the jazz influence there, but um, what are you digging at the moment? Dave, uh, let's go ahead and start with you. Well, you know, I still listen to a lot of classic uh, jazz recordings for, for inspiration. I still listen to kind of a heavy dose of James Brown. I mean, I think that, you know, all of those things groove-wise are just, uh, you know, some of the best music ever. I mean, we we also meet a lot of people around, you know. Um, there's a really great artist that uh, we met in Norway. His name is Ole Boru, and he has a killer album. Yeah. And um, I love the production on it, the drumming, everything. This is just like it's a recent album, but it sounds very, very old school. Um, the Scandinavian countries, I don't know what they're eating up there. I don't know if they're smoking anything. I don't know what they're We doing. hear that a lot. Man. <laughs> yeah. We, you, you, that, that's they got some stuff going on there that's ridiculous. Yeah. The, uh, the Dirty Loops, I love those. The guys. Dirty yeah. Loops, yep. Like, oh, man, unbelievable. See, see. But I, you know, I listen to a lot of that kind of stuff. I really, I, you know, all of those kind of things still influence me. A lot of Latin music. I love Latin music, so... Yeah, you know, you mentioned Ole and uh, and and Andreas Aleman, those guys over there in in, in uh, Scandinavia. Um, we've had him on the show before, and this he does tear it up. These guys have you're right. Something is something's in the water up there, and <laughs> and we sort of like what's happening up there. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> so Doc, what, what is it with you? What are you listening to? Um, I tend to look back rather than forward. Today's music uh, leaves me a little bit flat. Although I really did like. Uh, Amy Winehouse, that uh, rehab album, uh, yeah. I thought was brilliant, both conceptually and singing wise. And, Very uh, interesting. Yeah. And you really knew it was her. It was such a shame that uh, she couldn't control those demons. And yeah. uh, what a loss. Uh, I like the Great American Songbook. I like old soul tunes, and I like tunes that uh, used to cheer me up when I was coming coming up. So uh, that, that's what I get off on. Yeah, yeah. And Emilio, how about you? I, I like uh, great singers, and one of the things I noticed in the the last few years is uh, most of the great soul singers are in the church. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I listen to Fred Hammond and Yolanda Adams and yeah. uh, Smokey Norfolk and Diedrich Haddon. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like to listen to uh, great songs. So, you know, I have a lot of these box sets that I've gotten over the years, and uh, the Burt Bacharach box set is a favorite of mine right now. I'm listening to the Curtis Mayfield box set. Yeah. Uh, and you probably find this a little weird, but one of my favorite people to listen to in the whole world, and I listen often these days, is Allison Krauss and Union Station. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. think they're a phenomenal group, and they remind me of Tower of Power uh, in that they know each other so well. Yep. They listen to each other so closely, and they're so well blended, and they know their concept, their particular signature yeah. so well. They just own it. And uh, 
I just love listening to them. I wanted to introduce you guys to a band that maybe you haven't heard of that you might find interesting. They're a newer band, and they're called the Monophonics, and they're out of San Francisco. And I don't know if you've heard of them or not, but they're starting to make some waves there in San Francisco on the club scene. But their concept is that they're mixing – they're kind of old school in the sense they you know, mix Oakland funk with psychedelic rock, and they're kind of combining that. They've come up with their own sound, and they're really cool. They've got a really strong horn section, and uh, I just wanted to throw that out there because uh, Ryan Scott – Scott, who's the trumpet player, his, his, I'm a friend of his mom's, and, and uh, I've been following those guys, and they're really, really talented. I have heard their name. Uh-huh. I haven't heard them, but uh, I have heard a little bit about them. And, uh, you know, the Bay Area has always churned out some really creative, uh, yeah. uh, soulful-type bands. I remember years ago they had a band called the Freaky Executives, you know. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent horn section, uh, you know, really cool songs, very soulful and a real quirky way that they presented themselves, you know. Yeah. Hey, Manny, about those about the freakies. When I first came back to the Bay Area, I played some gigs with them, and to me, they were the closest thing to Tower Power. There's nothing really going to be close, but I mean, they were so awesome. They had a vibe and everything. Unfortunately, they disbanded, but man, what a fun band to play with! Really creative people. Amazingly creative people. Yeah. Another fan favorite from Tower of Power is, is the song What is Hip? And uh, maybe one of your most well-known tracks. And I want to stop and uh, take a listen. This is from your 40th anniversary CD on Inside Music Cast.
are tower of power. Well, guys, we appreciate uh, you guys hanging in there with us for such a long interview here, but we've just got a couple more questions and we'll be wrapped up. And I just wanted to uh, concentrate these last couple of uh, comments or, or questions about your 40th anniversary uh, DVD and CD of a live performance that was just outstanding. And in fact, uh, I was channel surfing and saw it playing on a, some station on DirecTV a couple of weeks ago, and I just I just stopped. I had things to do, but I just got mesmerized, and I was lost for the next couple of hours, and I watched that. And this concert was shot at the Fillmore in San Francisco and includes uh, – your performance, interviews with band members, and I think there's some other bonus footage on it. And uh, you also had uh, some past band members and some special guests on that uh, performance. That was that was a real treat. It was a fun time. Yeah. It was a great week. You know, we, we saw a lot of our old friends. We played a lot of songs we hadn't played for years. Yeah. We did it with the people that recorded them with us. And uh, I just felt like I was walking three feet uh, above the ground for the whole week uh, that wow. we prepared for that concert. And uh I'm very proud of the work. It took me a long time. I, I did the, the mixing and the video editing on that project, and it took me almost two years, you know, doing it between tours and getting it together and wow. having fans yelling and screaming, where is it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but we finally got it out, and I'm very proud of it. And, yeah, recently uh, what, what used to be HDNet is now uh, Access TV. That's AXS, what it was. Access TV. That's right. Picked it up, and they showed it for a whole week uh, here a week ago and yeah. uh, that's, that's been good for us that's really awesome. absolutely you know I noticed um, I, when I went to buy that I noticed that the concert was released on DVD but is there a chance it might be released on Blu-ray at some point do you guys know anything about that it's coming out soon on Blu-ray we had to oh, uh, redo it for a Blu-ray um, for that show uh, on Access yeah, and, uh, yeah so now that we have it already we're we're adding uh, a little bonus feature to it and releasing it on uh, Blu-ray. Excellent. Well, I'll have to buy it again because <laughs> yeah. I, I want it on Blu-ray this time. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, well, what's... thanks for your support. Oh, not yeah, a yeah. problem. <laughs> so, guys, what's next for Tower of Power? What do you, uh, you got some tours going on? Is you going to be uh, uh, recording some more? What, what's in store for us? Now we're leaving tomorrow for Canada, and then uh, we're coming back. Uh, we're doing a three Northwestern dates, and then we uh, come back and we go out to the West Coast and do a date, and we fly to Japan. We're playing the Tokyo Jazz Festival. Uh, we're wow. actually co-headlining with the band Rufus out there. Our horn section is going to play uh, two songs with Rufus, and then Rufus is going to back this Japanese soul singer, and our horn section is playing with them as well. And then uh, we're also recording a new CD. We uh, started recording, you know, once again, between tours, so it's taking a long time. You know, we're a working band, so we have to always work. And uh, But we go in whenever we have a, a window of time, and right now we have uh, 14 basic tracks completed. Uh, we put the backgrounds on 11 of them. We went in and recorded, uh, just jammed for three days and came up with about nine uh, great uh, you know, song ideas that are being uh, finished up by Larry Braggs uh, in terms of uh, lyric and hook. And, yeah. uh, and we're going to make some more time to record. We're going to, this time we're recording way more than we need. Uh, I really want to document the band as it is right now because it's really the best aggregation that I've ever had. That's awesome. And, uh, so I want to document it really well, do about 25 to 27 songs and pick the best 12. And it'll probably be done by the end of next year, you know. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, Emilio, Doc, uh, David, thanks so much for uh, spending all this time with us here in Inside Music Cast. And uh, Kim, I wanted to thank Kim uh, Riley down in Boca Raton for hanging out with us too today. Thanks, everyone. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we'll keep in touch, guys, and and best wishes to you. We hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. God bless. All All right. right. Take Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Emilio Castillo, Doc Kupka, and David Garibaldi from Tower of Power for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.